a chance to cheer this morning. Well, hold on, I haven't told you why. Thanks, Logan. Uh, the reason you can cheer is today is the last Sunday of February. Hold on, I'm not done. And it's the last week of February, or February, it's the last week of uh, Genesis 36. No more genealogy for a while, which I'm a little upset over, but that's okay. It's just me. Thank you, Logan. Okay, so when you see the phrase, the crown, which is my title, what do you think of? I think of royalty, kings and queens, etc., especially British royalty. Now, there's a TV show in its last season called The Crown, which follows the life of Queen Elizabeth II, who actually just passed away in 2022. Queen Elizabeth II's great-great-grandmother was Queen Victoria, who has been called the grandmother of Europe. This is a picture of her with all her children and grandchildren. Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert, were first cousins, and they looked to consolidate royal power through marriage. They had nine children, each of whom married important European royal families. Queen Victoria's grandchildren served as or married the kings or emperors of most of Europe. There was King George V of the United Kingdom, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, King Hakan VII of Norway, Ferdinand I of Romania, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, King Constantine I of Greece, Crown Prince Gustav Adolf of Sweden, and King Alfonso XIII of Spain. When World War I broke out, Wilhelm II of Germany was at war with his cousin, George V of the United Kingdom, and cousins-in-law, Nicholas II of Russia, and Ferdinand I of Romania. Several of Victoria's issue remain on European thrones today. You know, King Charles of Britain, King Harold V of Norway, King Charles XVI Gustav of Sweden, and King Felipe VI of Spain. They all descend from Victoria and Albert. In our scripture today, we're going to be investigating another royal family, the royal family of Esau. For the past several weeks, we've camped out on the idea that God cares and provides for all people, even non-covenant people. We also have seen comparisons between the descendants of Jacob and Esau. You know, Esau had children and grandchildren who became chiefs of tribes and clans. He and his descendants married into the family of Seir the Horite, who lived in the hill country of Seir. And eventually Esau and his family migrated there, and the nation of Edom was established. Today we're going to see that Esau's descendants have now become kings of Edom. They are ruling as chiefs and kings in their own land, long before the nation of Israel ever came into being. Esau and his descendants had it relatively easy, increasing in number and absorbing the land and the people there. In comparison, Jacob and his family will find themselves in Egypt, Due to famine, they will live there in slavery for 400 years. And finally, as God commands Moses to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land, they will wander in the wilderness for another 80 years. And then they will finally conquer their own land. 
It will take them a long time to become the monarchy that Edom has already established. You know, as I think about the hardships of the Israelites, who were God's chosen people, and the hardships they went through compared to their cousins, and as I think about the hardships that we as Christians go through compared to those in the world, we see that success, power, and prestige seems to come easy to those living by the world's standards. But the Israelites, God's chosen people, lived by a higher standard. It was God's standard. He tested and tried the Israelites. But the Edomites, the non-covenant side of the family of Abraham, do not get tested. We might ask ourselves why. I think the answer lies in what God's plan and purpose was for the Israelite people. They were to be a holy, set-apart people. They were supposed to be holy in this world in order to be ambassadors of God to their neighbors. They were blessed by God to be a blessing to other people. They were to usher in the coming Messiah to the world and spread his gospel. For them to fulfill this plan of purpose, they needed to be tested and tried and refined in the fire of slavery, wandering in the wilderness and exile. Esau and the Edomites did not have such a plan of purpose and such did not need to be tested. You know, as Christians, all the above is appropriate for us as well. We're called to be a holy, set-apart people. We are blessed by God to be a blessing in this world. God has a plan and purpose for us to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. And the Bible says that we will be tested and tried in God's refining fire as well. All the testing, all the testing of the Israelites, all our testing, are so that we will bear much fruit. And when that fruit is realized in the world, it will be for the glory of God. Which brings us to our big idea this morning, that God tests his people for the bearing of much fruit to the glory of God. As we prepare to open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come down in this place and on these people. We pray, Lord God, for open hearts and open minds as we study your word. Pray that you would use the Holy Scriptures to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, this morning we're going to wrap up chapter 36, the genealogy of Esau. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 43. There'll be three points this morning. The first one is just called introduction, and that'll be found in verse 31. Follow along as I read that verse. That's what God's word says. These were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. So before we see the list of kings, they're introduced us to us by this caveat. You know, again, Esau, Edom is compared to Jacob and Israel. Before Saul became king of Israel, there were already eight generations of kings in Edom. In Numbers 20, 14, we see these words. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. This refers to when the Israelites, being led by Moses in the wilderness, we're getting ready to pass through the Transjordan and enter the Promised Land. 
Moses sent messengers to ask the king of Edom to let them pass. He wanted them to be able to pass unharmed. He promised that they would stay on the king's highway and pay for any water that his men or his people or their, their livestock used. But the king of Edom refused. He even threatened to attack them by the sword. Later, when King David conquered the Edomites, later, King David would conquer the Edomites and rule over them. And these events fulfilled Isaac's blessing on Esau, found in Genesis 27, 40. It says, you will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. Numbers 20, 14 confirms that Edomite kings were already ruling before the Israelites entered the promised land. Something we're going to notice in the king list that follows is that it is evidence of an elective kingship instead of a dynastic one. This means that the succession of kings was not based on hereditary, heredity, heredity, like we see in the United Kingdom. The eight kings will succeed in each other in an orderly fashion, but no king will be the son of a previous one. Also, the place of origin for the capital city is different for each king. This may be the only evidence of a non-dynastic monarchy in the ancient Near East, except for the election of King Saul. When Saul was made the king of Israel, there was no provision made for Saul's sons to take over the throne after he was, after, like there was after King David. So last week, Pastor Stewart made the point that God provides for all people, even people outside the Abrahamic covenant. Esau's descendants may have been outside the covenant, but they weren't outside the story of God. The point will, this point will be reaffirmed by this list of Edomite kings as they represent the first stage of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that we see in Genesis 17, 16. This is God speaking to Abraham about Sarah. This is what he says. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. The Edomite kings were a direct fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And then lastly, in 1 Samuel 8, 5, we see these words when the Israelites wanted, wanted a king like other nations. It was possible that the Edomites were one of these nations that they had in mind. Our second point this morning is called succession. That's found in verses 32 to 39. This is what God's word says. Bela, son of Beor, became king of Edom. His city was named Dinhabah. When Bela died, Yobab, son of Zerah from Basra, succeeded him as king. When Yobab died, Husham, from the land of the Temanites, succeeded him as king. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, succeeded him as king. His city was named Avanth. When Hadad died, Samla from Masrika succeeded him as king. When Samla died, Shaw from Rehoboth on the river succeeded him as king. When Shaw died, Baal-Hanan, son of Akbor, succeeded him as king. When Baal-Hanan, son of Akbor, died, Hadad succeeded him as king. His, his city was named Pal, and his wife's name was Mahatabal, daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mezahab. 
So we see a recurring formula here. X died, and Y succeeds him as king, and his city was named Z. As I said earlier, no son ever succeeded their father as king. We also see that the capital city changes with each king. They ruled out of the city where they lived, as King Saul did. The first king was Bela, son of Beor. Bela means eloquent. In Numbers 22.5, we see that Balaam, a wicked prophet, was also a son of Beor. Bela's capital city is Dinhabah, which nothing is known about. When Bela died, Yobab, son of Zer from Basra, became king. The name Yobab is also seen in Genesis 22 or Genesis 10:29, as he is identified as the third great grandson of Shem. These resemblance of names go on goes on to show that the fact, show the fact that the Israelites and the Edomites were in fact related. Kind of like in families where you have the same names passed down. We've also seen the name Zerah earlier in Genesis 36 as the grandson of Esau and Bozmath. And Basra is one of the Edomite towns most often referred to in the Bible. We see it named in Isaiah 34, 6 and Amos 1, 12, where those prophets prophesied about God's judgment on the nations who were against Israel. The third king was Husham, which means broad-nosed in Arabic. He was from the land of the Temanites. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that one of the friends of, Jake, of Job was Eliphaz the Temanite. The fourth king was Hadad, son of Bedad, and his name is associated with the Syrian storm god, meaning thunder. And with him, we have our first antidote. It explains that Hadad defeated Midian in the area of Moab. And this was probably to distinguish this Hadad from the one who is mentioned in verse 39 as the eighth king. The name Badad means separate or alone, and this one's capital city was Avanth. The fifth king was Samla, which means protection in Arabic. His capital city was Masrika, which is related to the noun vine. It was probably located in a vine-growing area. The sixth king was Shal, which means requested, and his capital city was Rehoboth on the river. Rehoboth means open spaces, and this river could refer to either the Euphrates with the Jordan. The seventh king was Balhanan, son of Akbor. Balhanan means Baal is, Baal is gracious, and Akbor means mouse. Balhanan is the only king not ascribed to capital city. And the eighth and last king on the list is Hadad, and his capital city is Pal. And again, we get some explanation. He was the husband of Mahatabal, who was the daughter of Matrid, who was the daughter of Mezahab. Mahatabal means El, or God is good, does good. Matrid means to run continually. And Mezahab means waters of gold. And it was unusual to name two women in an ancestral line, but it may have been because these women's names conveyed a great splendor that meant continuous running waters of gold. Our third point to, to this morning is settlement found in verses 40 to 43. You can follow along as I read those verses. That's what God's word says. These were the chiefs descended from Esau. 
by name according to their clans and regions. Timnah, Alva, Yaveth, Aholabama, Elah, Pinon, Kanaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom according to their settlements in the land they occupied. This is the family line of Esau, the father of the Edomites. This final list is a list of chiefs descended from Esau according to their clans and regions. According to their clans is the same formula used in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. And four of the 11 names we've seen before. Timnah, who was the concubine of Eliphaz, who, and the sister of Lotan, who was the son of Seir. Aholabama, daughter of Anah, who was a wife of Esau. And Kenaz and Teman, sons of Eliphaz and chiefs of Edom. These other seven names are new to us. We have Alva, which means ascend. Yadeth. We have Allah, which means terebinth. Pinon, which is a known copper mining and smelting site in Edom. Mibzar, which, was, which means fortress. Magdiel, which means fruit or gift of El. And Iram. One of the problems with identifying this list is how to reconcile it with the chiefs of Esau listed in verses 15 to 19. First, these may be later chiefs of Edom than those mentioned earlier. Or second, the list in verses 15 to 19 may be genealogically arranged, and this list is geographically arranged. This list is referred to as regions and settlements in the lands that they occupied. Hamilton says this, the names that follow might refer to the names of the dwellings rather than that of the chieftains. And Wenham says, it has been suggested that this is a list of the administrative districts of Edom, since some of the names are place names. The word occupy here is the same as held, and it's the same word that we saw when Esau first appeared in Genesis. If you remember at the twins' birth, Jacob took hold of Esau's heel. This may be a deliberate play on words to mark the last appearance of Esau here in the book of Genesis. The fact that Edom held these lands again fulfills the promise to Abraham in Genesis 17:8. They have gained secure possession of the land of Edom, just as Israel will have secure possession of theirs. This language indicates that both the Edomites and the Israelites received their land by divine commission from God. And lastly, the ancestral heritage of the Edomites is reaffirmed, reminding us that Esau was their father. Esau's descendants had become clans, chiefs, kings, and districts. They have an established political structure and royalty. There is no doubt that they're flourishing. Esau has now become a dynasty with eight kings in succession and chiefs in 11 districts. Their power and the extent of their monarchy is incredible. And their impact would be felt for centuries after Esau's death as these cousins of the Israelites 
would relentlessly and persistently oppose them for a long time to come. <clears throat> Interestingly, when Jesus stood before King Herod at his trial, Jesus was standing in the line of Jacob, and Herod was standing in the line of Esau. Herod was an Edomian, which is the Greek equivalent of an Edomite. This descendant of Esau ridiculed and mocked Jesus, a descendant of Jacob, who was also the son of God. There's a warning to us in this chapter. We need to be careful in our dealings with others so that we don't allow a bitter root to grow up and cause trouble in the future, as we see here in the story of Esau. Hebrews 12, 14 to 17 says this. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. We must make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, because if we don't, we could be perpetuating conflict, not only in our lifetime, but in the lifetimes of our descendants, far beyond anything we could ever imagine. And that brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning. My next step is to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. As I conclude today, I want to revisit our big idea. God tests his people for the bearing of much fruit to the glory of God. Again, reading from Hebrews, this time, Hebrews 12, 5b to 11, we see these words. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chases everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what, child are not, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our, our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You know, there have been archaeological digs done in Basra, which was King Yobab's capital city, where they have found effigies in stone and pottery, albeit from after the patriarchal period, but showing that there were generations of idolatry in that area. 
This didn't happen overnight, but may have been birthed by Esau as the material outweighed the spiritual in his life. Baldwin says this, despite the struggle of the prophets in Israel over the same issue, excavations have nowhere near unearthed a plethora of idols in the territory of Israel and Judah. Esau's defection set a precedent, which was later to lead to identification with the idolatrous religion of the local population. Baldwin goes on to say, if it had not been for the many forms of divine discipline which culminated in the exile, the story would not have been of the, the story would have been of the same sorry decline among Jacob's descendants. It was the mercy of God that refused to give them up and instead worked to produce a people who were capable of receiving his salvation, which is a theme for the rest of the Old Testament. The story of Jacob was different than the story of Esau in that God tested and disciplined his chosen people for the bearing of much fruit to his glory. You know, it's the same for us today as Christians. We need to endure hardship as discipline. We need to accept God's perfect discipline in our lives, knowing that he does it for our good in order that we share in his holiness. It will not be pleasant, it will be painful, but it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace if we're willing to be trained by it. And through it all, God will receive the glory. That brings us to our second next step this morning, which is to accept God's testing and discipline in my life in order to bear much fruit so that God will receive the glory. As the ushers come to gather the tithes and offerings, and the communication cards, and as the praise team comes to lead us in a final song, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have had to dive deep into your word. Help us to strive to live in peace with everyone and to be holy so that we aren't leaving conflict in our wake. Help us to accept your testing and discipline in order to bear the fruit in our lives that is honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen.